Scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. You can stand as I read Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you again um, for this immense privilege we have to be called by your name, to be in relationship with you, and to have in possession your word, and to be um, by your spirit, Lord, able to hear your voice and to respond in obedience to you. So I thank you, God, that we can gather together in your name and hear you, and I pray that we would indeed hear you and respond in faith and obedience to you out of love for you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I had an interesting experience this week that I hope not to repeat. And um, like most things in my life, it started out very simple. I bent over to um, plug something in behind a little counter that we have in our, in our kitchen. And didn't um, remember the coffee cup shelf that is above that counter, and I banged my head into that shelf. And um, I didn't like that a whole lot. Um, I I didn't um, say anything, but I hopped around holding my head, making all kinds of inarticulate noises, um, only for my wife to later tell me, you know, I didn't react that way um, when she did the same thing some other time. That helped nothing. I now have two red spots on my scalp from banging my head into things, and um, the hair covers it up for the time being, um, but someday you'll probably see those big red spots on my head. Sometimes we approach the law of God um, in the same way. I banged my head against that once before. I never want to have that experience again. And we look at the law as something to be avoided, something that just causes pain, something that makes us bang our heads into it. How can it be any good from that? And we just want to get away from it. And in fact, it does cause pain. Um, it, It does cause us to see ourselves as we are, and we want to run away from from that revelation. We've had a number of our Young people that have worked at HEB and do work at HEB, it's been a great employer, HEB being the local grocery store in town. And I love going through there and finding one of our our young people um, employed there, especially if they're working in the cash register. And um, I've had fun with them over the years. One of them, I walked up to him as I was checking out and very loud so everybody else could hear, said, they must not do background checks here. (laughs) They don't know what to say. Or, boy, I haven't seen you since you've gotten out of jail. It's nice to see you again. And uh, it's great doing that to these kids. 
No one wants others to think that you've just gotten out of jail or you have something on your background check that would keep you from being employed, but that's what the law does. It exposes us, and we see ourselves for what we really are. So when we come to a passage like this where Jesus says, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets, we go, that's not good news. I would like to think Jesus came to do exactly that to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets is another way of just talking about the entire Old Testament. And so he's not saying he came to do away with that. So we need to to think carefully here about what he is saying and what he's not saying. It's still very much a relevant topic today of what is the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament and in particular to the law. And we are all over the place as Christians on this. 2,000 years have gone by since Jesus said this, and we are still questioning what is our relationship to the Old Testament, and in particular to the law. So he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but rather, he says, I came to fulfill it. Now, I've noted before that this is so important for us to understand, particularly Um, And if you want to have any ministry, any evangelistic opportunity with a Jewish person, because they understand better than we do the significance of the Old Testament and, again, of the law in particular. In fact, if you were to tell a, a Jew that Jesus abolished the law, that would give them grounds for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Pure and simple. They don't have to listen to another word you say. Because they know that the law and the prophets are the word of God. And if your so-called Messiah came to abolish the word of God, then he is not the Messiah. So they are more than happy to hear you say, as a Christian, Jesus abolished the law. Because that gives them an excuse for not placing their faith in Jesus for salvation. I sat on an airplane many years ago, and I got out my Bible. I didn't have a smaller Bible. I just had this big, thick thing that looked like a dictionary. And, um, and I wasn't embarrassed to read it, and so I was reading it on the plane. And um, that was back in the day when people would actually talk to you when you were on the plane. And they, nobody now, everybody just plugs in and, and, you know, and tune everything out. So this man, older gentleman in a, in a suit, um, looked over at me and said, that's a ponderous book that you're reading. What is that? And I said, it's a Bible. And he goes, well, that's interesting. He says, I'm a Jew, and I'm a professor, I think he said University of Florida or something. And um, he says, I'd like to know where in the Bible does it say that Jesus came to abolish the law? And I'm thinking, I don't think Jesus said that. And so I, I said, I don't think he said that. But I said, let me figure it out. And so I went to the concordance in the back of my Bible. I looked up the word abolish, and it took me here to Matthew 5, 17. And I read it, and I said, look at this. And I passed my Bible over to him, and it says, do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And the guy actually took out a three-by-five card and wrote the verse down, Matthew 5, 17. And I thought... Now's our chance to talk about Jesus. End of conversation. He wanted nothing more to do with me because 
Everything he'd been told about Jesus was just undone with that one verse. And now he knows he has to reckon with him. Because if Jesus fulfills the law, then that means he fulfills everything concerning the Messiah. And so that man wanted nothing to do with this verse. This is the gospel written to the Jews. And so we can see why Jesus right crack out of the gate here when he's giving his constitution for the new kingdom. He says, you need to understand this. Because when he gives these blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, all these blessings, they're hearing new constitution. This is the same thing Moses did, remember, back in Deuteronomy 28. Blessed are you, blessed are you. Now Jesus is doing the same. They would have, hearing, would have been hearing Moses when Jesus was giving these blessings. So they would have been hearing another law. And they would have instinctively thought Jesus is abolishing the law of Moses. He has no right. So Jesus is going, don't think that's what I'm doing. Yes, he's giving a new law. But that does not mean he's abolishing the old law. He is fulfilling it, not abolishing it. So what is our relationship to this new law? What is our relationship to the old law? So let's just keep reading, and I'll come back and answer some of these questions. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. So why not? Why? He, says, I, he says, you could sooner destroy the earth than destroy the word of God. You could sooner abolish the earth than you could abolish the word of God. It's not going to happen. So clearly, Jesus has a very, very high view of Scripture. And again, we're talking about a high view of the Old Testament. How high of a view of the Old Testament should we have? Paul says to, the, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, and Paul would have meant Old Testament as well as New Testament, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So this begins to tell us that though Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, He has fulfilled the law, it is still the inspired Word of God. And it is still profitable for today. There's a lot going on there. We also know from Scripture that Paul said to the Romans that the, that the Bible... I'm sorry, specifically the law, he says, is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Even when we bang our head against it, even when it exposes everything that's about us, it is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. Read Psalm 19. Read Psalm 119. Boy, talk about a high view of Scripture where these guys are rejoicing in it. And they go, it restores my soul. And they're going, it is a revelation of God. It is my delight. It is my joy. It is my strength. And they're talking about the law. And we go, hate that law. Tired of banging my head into that law. We don't have the same view of the law that the Old Testament saints had, or Jesus, or Paul. It is good. It is righteous. It is holy. That's what the Bible says. It is the inspired word of God. It is not 
going to go away. Heaven and earth will go away before the law, before the Old Testament goes away. He has fulfilled it. It has been accomplished, but it has not gone away. Therefore, verse 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments. So an interesting thing that he's saying there is there are greater and lesser commandments, right? There are greater and lesser commandments. They're all commandments. They all stand together, but some are greater than others. So Jesus says, somebody came to him and they said, what is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus says, the greatest of the commandments is that you love the Lord your God um, and, and, and have, no other, have no other gods. And so, and so here, there are greater and lesser commandments, which means there are greater and lesser sins. Goes without saying. That rattles us. It shouldn't. This is why when you read throughout the Old Testament, although all the commandments are the Word of God, all of them are equally inspired, all of them are important, some are greater than others, and that's why some come with greater consequences if you transgress them than other commandments. Transgress the Sabbath, the penalty is you die. Transgress stealing, thou shalt not steal, and the penalty is you have to pay back two or three times as much as what you stole. But you don't die. Nobody was executed for, break, for stealing, but they were to be executed for breaking the Sabbath. There are greater and lesser commandments and greater and lesser consequences or penalties for breaking those commandments. And so anyone who teaches somebody else to break the commandments, that person shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We saw recently, as we were looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, that Ezra is the classic Old Testament example of somebody who kept and taught the commandments. And so he is one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament because of his relationship to the law, to the commandments. You understand, and well, I'll just go to verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. So what is righteousness according to this context? Keeping the commandments of God. In this context, the indication of righteousness is how you relate to God's word. Now, we know the Old Testament is not preaching salvation by works. The Old Testament preaches salvation by faith. Abraham, because of his faith, that faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But we also know throughout the Old Testament that the indication of righteousness is how you relate to God's word. Righteous people keep God's word. This is going to be very important when we go back to the beginning of Matthew and look at, at Joseph and how he was called a righteous man. And because he was a righteous man, he, was sought, he sought to put away Mary or to divorce Mary. So his righteousness compelled him. His, and why was he righteous? Faith, yes. But the indication of that righteousness was how he related to the word. And he related to the word in obedience. So that's what Jesus is saying here. What you do with the Word of God is a great indicator of your relationship with God. That's what he's saying. And so if you try to scoot away from the Word, 
You try to dismiss the word. You try to say the word doesn't apply to you. You try to even say God has a different word for you than the word that he's already given. It shows a low view of the word. And that shows that your relationship with God is not what you might think it is. Because how we relate to God on the basis of his word is the clearest indication of how we are doing with God. Well, is that legalism? Apparently not. This is what Jesus is saying. That the one who does not, who annuls these commandments or teaches others to, not, to, to annul them or to not obey them, he will be least in the kingdom of heaven. And our righteousness, which is a righteousness in relation to the word and obedience to it, must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Or you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. These are big, big statements. So I want to just think through this a little bit and, and make some observations and some application from this. Clearly, Jesus is saying, you're wrong if you think that he came to abolish the law. He came to fulfill, not to abolish. Nothing about the Old Testament is going to cease to be relevant until it is all accomplished. We are not to minimize the Old Testament. Rank in the kingdom of God is based upon obedience to it. Righteousness, our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. These are things that Jesus is saying. I appreciate this quote by J. Vernon McGee. He says, you cannot break the commandments and get away with it, but you cannot keep them in your own strength. The only way you can keep them is by coming to Jesus Christ for salvation, power, and strength. And Dwight Pentecost said, the righteousness that God requires is no other than his own. So when he says your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, well, how righteous is that? Well, a lot more righteous than any of us in our own strength. This is where Jesus is again in this sermon trying to bring us to that place of poverty of spirit. I could never surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, even in terms of the externals. I mean, I, and they had no righteousness of heart. Jesus wasn't saying they were righteous in heart. But just in terms of the externals, I mean, what, they fast twice a week? They prayed three times a day? I mean, on and on what these guys did. Who exercises that kind of discipline today in their Christian life? External righteousness. And he says, your righteousness must surpass that. And so that means not external, but the internal righteousness of the heart. And that is something that can only be, be derived through faith in Jesus Christ. Just to give another word about the law and what it is that we're talking about, many scholars have, have observed that there are 613 commandments or laws in the Old Testament. Not 10, 613. Now, not all of those would have pertained to every single person in Israel. Some of those laws pertained only to the priests, for example. Some laws pertained only to men. Other laws pertained only to women. But in the total, 613, they stood together as a division. Modern people like to, to divide them up between the moral law, the ceremonial laws. There was no div division in the Old Testament. They stood together as a unit. 
So yes, some were greater than others, some were more important than others, but they were all law, and you were not free to pick and choose which ones you would obey. And the clear truth is there has never been anyone to fulfill them, anyone to carry them all out as they would have applied to any one person other than Jesus Christ. That's very important. In no measure of the 613 laws did Jesus transgress any of them. Can you imagine? See, he's the first person who's done that. Not a single law did he transgress. He didn't set it aside. This is hugely important for us to understand because when it comes to our life and our relationship, not to the law of the Old Testament, but to the law of Christ in the New Testament, I'll speak more to that in a second, Jesus doesn't set aside anything for us any more than he set it aside for himself, but rather he lives in us to fulfill the demands of the law. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8, that by the Spirit in us, that the, that the, that the demands of the law are fulfilled by the Spirit in us. And so Jesus came and he lived the law perfectly, absolutely perfectly. Had he not, and see, I hear people say on occasion, Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath. That's why the Pharisees were always saying, you heal on the Sabbath, and Jesus healed all the time on the Sabbath, and, and his disciples were gleaning um, and, and eating on the Sabbath, and, and, so, and he instructed them to do so. And so Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath. He broke it. He set it aside. It's not true. See, the penalty for breaking the Sabbath was capital punishment. Jesus could have been executed for breaking the Sabbath. And you'll note at the end of his life, when he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, of all the things that they were accusing him of, they did not accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. They could have, if he had in fact done that. And that would have been grounds for saying he is not who he claims to be. But he didn't break the Sabbath. He broke their traditions concerning the Sabbath, and they had lots of traditions. And he trounced those left and right, but he did not break the Sabbath. Now, there are seven purposes to the law. It is to reveal the holiness of God and the standard of righteousness needed for a relationship with him. Its purpose was not to save us. Its purpose was to reveal the holiness of God. A second purpose was to provide the rule of conduct for the Old Testament um, saints, for Israel. It was not given to all the world. The law was given to Israel and, to, and conducted Israel's affairs. Third, it was to keep Israel a distinct people. Fourth, it was to provide Israel with occasions for individual and corporate worship. Fifth, it was to reveal sin. One of the reasons that God gave the law was so that sinners could see their own sin. And that would strip away their self-righteousness and cause them to see their need for a Savior. Another purpose of the law was actually to make people sin more. Romans 4.15 and Romans 5.20 say that it was given so that sin might increase. Wow. But ultimately, the law was given to lead us to Jesus. Paul says in Galatians, it is a tutor to lead us to Christ. And then he says in the next verse, and we are no longer under a tutor. Now, how did it lead you to Jesus? By showing you 
how you couldn't keep the law. You weren't good enough to keep it. Kelly recently in a podcast talked about a student we had at his hill, and it was a great story. I, I, I probably have told it since I'm preaching, but you'll bear with me. Um, and he was 25 years old when he came to his hill. He lived on his own for many years, absolutely hated the rules at his hill, saw them as being nothing but just law. I was so thankful that I wasn't the director at the time. Bill Bushhouse was. I was the assistant director. And I was in Bill's office when the student came in and just was going, stupid laws, stupid rules, you need to change these rules. And so Bill said to him, you know, maybe God brought you here to his hill just to show us how stupid the rules are. He goes, that's what I'm thinking. And, and, and so Bill goes, you know, maybe, maybe the problem is, is not the rules, but it's you. No, I've lived on my own. I don't need these rules. These are stupid rules. So Bill goes, well, that's what this, well let's, let's just do this, and then I can know the problem is the rules and not you. You go one week and keep the rules, and I will know the problem is the rules and not you. And he says, if you go one week and keep the rules, we'll change whatever you want changed. And I'm sitting there going, chaos. This is, this is crazy. We're going to have nothing but chaos. And so a long week, student comes back in, sits down, and he just starts sobbing. I mean, there's snot and tears hitting the floor. And, and he lifts his head up, and, and he goes, he just threw his tears. He goes, the problem's not, not, not the rules. The problem's me. I can't even go one week and keep the rules. See, that's the purpose of the law, to show us our sin and thereby to lead us to Christ. And it was such a turning point in that young man's heart. Everything turned from that point because he's realized, I am not able. I can't live this Christian life. God has a law for me, and I can't keep it. I need Jesus. You see, this is again why Romans 8, the Spirit of God lives in us to fulfill the requirements of the law. I can't do this on my own. Scripture's clear that we are not under the Old Testament law. Where does it say that? How do, again, this gets to the whole question, well, it's, it's, it's not going away. Jesus came to fulfill it. It is good and righteous and holy. What is my relationship to it? Well, I'm not under it. Okay. Number one, the law was given to the Jew. It was not given to the Gentile. So if you are Jewish, then this is more difficult for you to know what your place is in relation to the law as a Christian. But if you're not a Jew, this should be very easy. You were never under the law. The law simply was not given to the world. It was only given to Israel. It is a Mosaic covenant to Israel. This is why the law was ratified when they went into Canaan and he put six tribes of Israel on one mountain, Ebal, and six tribes on the other mountain, Gerasim, and he read the law to Israel. It was only to them. Does that mean it has no relevance for us? No, it is the inspired word of God. And all God's word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So even though it, was, it is not... To me, that doesn't mean that I can't profit from it. Think about the Song of Solomon. And I, you know, I kind of like teaching the Song of Solomon every year at his hill. 
Nobody sleeps through that class. But it's very clear from the very first sentences of that book that it's not written to us. It was a man writing to one of his 700 wives. Okay? And so we don't know which one. And maybe he had 700 songs, but we know, we know he had more than 700. He had 1,005 songs, we're told. So I guess one for all 700 wives plus 300 concubines and five other songs just for good measure. But my point is, we do, can we not profit from the Song of Solomon? Absolutely. It's the Word of God. It's the inspired Word of God. But it wasn't written to us. It was written by Solomon to one woman. Book of Proverbs. It's very clear. Solomon says, my son, I am writing these things to you. He was writing to a particular son, maybe to several sons, but he wasn't writing to us. Does that mean it doesn't? No, it pertains to us. We profit from it. I love the book of Proverbs until I bang my head against it. <laughs> I don't like that part of it. But it's, it's the word of God, and it is profitable. But in the same sense, the law was not to us. But is it profitable? Absolutely. Does it reveal the holiness of God? Absolutely. Does it reveal the will of God? Yes, it does. I can read the Ten Commandments. Would I want the Ten Commandments to be posted in every classroom across America? Absolutely, I'd love to see that. Because those Ten Commandments, again, reveal the holiness of God, but also would reveal our transgression and lead us to Jesus. But that doesn't mean we are under the Ten Commandments. So I'm trying to walk a balance here because I don't hear me as saying, just ignore it. We don't ignore the Old Testament. But don't hear me as saying that we have to keep the Old Testament. We have to keep the 613 laws. We're not under that law. Listen to some of these verses about that law. It says, what the law could not do Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The law is weak. It cannot accomplish righteousness, salvation, justification. There is no way. What Jesus did was to came and fulfilled it and thereby setting it aside. Hebrews 7.18, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. See, Jesus is going to say at the end of chapter 5, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But the author of Hebrews says the law made nothing perfect. So if you think that you can have right standing by, before God on the basis of your performance in relation to the law, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. But Christ came in fulfilling the law to set it aside, to set aside the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. 
Uselessness for what? Not, not for revealing. It, it, it reveals God, reveals our need for God, points us to Jesus. So in what way is it useless? It is not able to save us. Hebrews 8, 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would, be, have no been, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Hebrews 8, 13, he has made the first obsolete. Hebrews 10, 9, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. These are very clear statements. It has been fulfilled, even if it were for us. It's been fulfilled. It has been, in that sense, taken away. We are not under it. Hebrews 3, I'm sorry, Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Does this then nullify the law? Does faith nullify the law? Paul says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. See, that very strong negative in the Greek, may it never be. Don't think that faith nullifies the law. And see, this is such a strong reaction by Paul because, again, he is, he's going to come back to saying in the same book of Romans, it is good and righteous and holy, the law. So don't think that faith nullifies the law. See, Jesus did not come to nullify the law. And faith does not nullify the law but rather faith establishes the law. Doesn't establish that we are under it, but establishes that it is good and righteous and holy. So it doesn't make it, a, make it something I have to, to, to live under today, but it does, faith is just affirming that what the law says about me is absolutely right. And I have no grounds to set it aside. I have no grounds to ignore it. It is speaking to me, and it speaks to each of us, and says, I fall short, and I need a Savior. So faith, in that sense, establishes the law. Not establishes that I'm under it, but establishes that it still speaks with relevance to each of us today. And if it didn't, then why put my faith in Christ? Now, Jesus says in the next section, we're not going to get it to, to, to it today, but beginning in verse 21, Jesus is going to go through this rest of the chapter. He's going to say, you have heard that it is said, but I say to you, okay? And, and I'm going to, I'll speak to that some more next week, but typically we say, well, Jesus is adding to the law. I really have problems with that because of verses like Galatians 3, 3.15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet, now, I'm not speaking of Moses' covenant, but he said, even a man's covenant, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. No one. So Jesus, when we get to these passages where it says, but I say to you, I don't think we have the liberty to think or say Jesus is adding to what Moses said. Because once a covenant has been ratified, it cannot be changed, even by God, because God is unchanging, and His Word is unchanging. So that's not what's happening here. We'll look into that more next week. Galatians 3.19 says, Why the law then? 
It was added because of transgressions. In Galatians 3.22, Paul says, The scripture has shut up everyone under sin. I'm so glad at this stage in my life that I can read the word shut up because I used to get in a lot of trouble as a kid if I ever said that, but it's biblical. I didn't know this verse when I was a kid or maybe would have quoted it to my mom. Shut up, Galatians 3.22. But <laughs> so the scripture has shut up, silenced everyone under sin. That's again one of the purposes of the law so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. We are no longer under a tutor. So these are some of the statements of Scripture. So we are not under the law. We are under none of it. But it is good, righteous, and holy. It is inspired. It is profitable. It is applicable to our lives. Neither are we without law. This is very, very important, because just as quickly as I say we are not under the law, just as quickly it needs to be said, do not for a moment think that you are without law. Because Paul says very clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, even though we are not under the law, we are not without law. Law, for we are under, Paul says, the law of Christ. This is what Jesus is doing here. He is fulfilling the law of Moses so that he can legitimately exchange that law for a new law. And there is never a moment in time for the Jewish people or for us where we are not without law. Lawlessness is what Satan does. God brings law. This is why it is a good thing to be a nation of laws, right? I just saw a Guatemalan woman on, on the television the other day standing there in tears with her one baby, and she left another behind in Guatemala. She could only bring one with her, and they're asking her, why did you come? And she says, because this is a nation of law and order. She broke the law to get to a nation of law and order. But she says, back in Guatemala, the laws mean nothing. And the police don't do anything to enforce them. They're all corrupt. I wanted to come to a place where there, was, where there was less corruption. See, it's a good thing to have law. But law is, has a strict purpose. And God didn't come to abolish the law. You should, you should hear Satan saying, law is bad. I came to abolish the law. Do away. See, Satan is the anarchist. Christ came to fulfill the law, but exchange it for a new law, the law of Christ. We are not without law. This law of Christ, it's mentioned that also in Galatians 6.2. It's also called the law of the spirit of life in Romans 8. It's called the law of liberty in James chapter 1 and James chapter 2. And it's also called the royal law. But that's four different ways that we are said to be under law as a Christian. The law of Christ, the law of the spirit of life and liberty, the law of liberty, the law of the royal law. Christians are under law. And it is not the law of the Old Testament. It is the law of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means he's given specific commands in the New Testament, and we are to obey them. But every one of those commandments is a reflection of himself. And so very simply, you can say, even if you didn't have a New Testament, you're not without excuse because Jesus himself is your law.
And whatever is contrary to Jesus is unacceptable, pure and simple. I don't like the statement, what would Jesus do? Because that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is Christ living his life in and through us. Not me mimicking Jesus, but Jesus living his life. But nonetheless, it's not always a bad question. Is the behavior that I am sanctioning as being the permitted will of God, is this what Jesus would do? Is this consistent with who he is? And if the answer is no, then I am not permitted to do it because Jesus is my law. Jesus is my law. And anything that is outside who he is, anything that is contrary to his person and character is contrary to what he permits for you and me. We are not free to do whatever we want. We are under the law of Christ. We are not on a performance basis with God. Being under the law of Christ does not mean that I'm on a performance basis with God. We are on a faith basis with God. We live in dependence upon Him. And from that dependence, we live in obedience to Him. But don't get them mixed up. It's not obedience and then dependence. It's dependence and obedience. It is a faith relationship. Praise God. He's not looking at our performance and saying, on that basis, I accept you or reject you. We need to get that through our heads as Christians. We were not saved by our performance, and we do not live by our performance. We are not sanctified by our performance any more than we are saved by our performance. It is a faith, faith in Christ that brought us into salvation, and it is faith in Christ that we live the Christian life. We are saved and sanctified in the same way by faith in Jesus Christ. And praise God, it is not based on our performance. The Old Testament law could not be kept. It could not give life. It could not make perfect. It could not make righteous. It was inherently weak. Not bad, just weak. But neither could it be ignored or changed. It had to be fulfilled, and thereby it could be set aside. Christ fulfilled it. He never transgressed it or altered it. And he will not will for us to, do, to either transgress it or alter it or say that he has altered it for us. A new law has been given, and it is the law of Christ. Christ himself, as I've said, is our law. I hope that in going over these truths, that maybe it's a little clear. They say what's a fog in the pulpit or a mist in the pulpit is a fog, you know, or a verse of I get. What, if it's confusing for me, it's more confusing for everybody else is the point. I don't, in my mind and heart, I'm not confused here. I think it's, it's very clear to me. I love the Old Testament. There's not a page of the Old Testament that I go, that's irrelevant. It is the inspired word of God. And as I've said twice already, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for training, for correction, for correction and training in righteousness. Amen. We should have a high view of all of Scripture because it is the inspired Word of God. The law is good and righteous and holy, but it has its limits. It cannot bring about righteousness in my life. Never was meant to. It points me to Jesus, but I don't need that tutor any longer. 
See, I am no longer under a tutor. I have Christ himself. I don't need the law for that purpose. It reveals the righteousness and holiness of God. It reveals my own sin. And it reveals my need for Jesus. It's great. I love it. I love teaching the Old Testament. Had a person actually leave this church one time when I started teaching from the Old Testament. Couldn't believe it. It is all profitable. But our law is not the law of Moses. Our law as believers in Jesus Christ is Christ himself, the law of Christ. And that is every bit as uncompromising as the law of Moses. No less challenging, no less impossible. I can no more keep the law of Christ than I could keep the law of Moses. Right? It takes Jesus. How can I live a life that is consistent with Jesus? Impossible apart from Christ in me. But that's the law, and he never deviates from it. It grieves my heart when I, when I hear so often Christians saying, well, that's your truth, but I've got my own truth. That's what God has said to you, but God has said something else to me. And I go, there's one truth, it's Jesus. And there's one revelation of him, and that is his word. And when your truth is revealing a Jesus that is contrary to the one revealed in Scripture, I'm sorry, your truth is wrong. It is not the truth. And we all have one law. Doesn't matter what country we live in as Christians. You can go anywhere in this world, and the laws are different. But when it comes to a Christian in the law, there is one law that we all adhere to and that we are all under and that is the person of Jesus Christ and his revealed word. And I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you again for the practicality of your word. And Lord, as we deal with this, these transitions in Scripture between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, it does get confusing for us at times. We look to you, God, as the one who is light to keep us in the light and that we would be clear on the things where we need to be clear and that we would not be confused, errant, God, not uh, placing ourselves under something that you don't place us under, not ex accepting a condemnation, God, that is not from you because we fall short in something that you never even placed on us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see that you are our law. And that personal aspect of that, it's not just um, written on, on paper, though it is, but it's a personal relationship with you where all that you are, you want to manifest in each of us for your glory and honor. And I thank you, God, for the privilege of being in that relationship with you where you are bringing us into conformity to yourself and that what is true of you is being fleshed out in us as we simply trust you, rely upon you, God, to finish the work that you've begun in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.